chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. It is probably one of the best-known passages of Scripture. Like most well-known passages of Scripture, it is often misused and abused and mistreated. Um, it includes the famous verse, all things work together for good. Now, that is absolutely true. I don't want to imply that it's not true that all things work together for good. But I do want to suggest that a lot of times what we think that means is not what that means. You ever had something really, really uh, terrible happen? And, uh, somebody comes and they try to comfort you with all things work together for good by saying that that means that everything's going to work out in the end. You know, you're going to get a better job or you're going to get something else. And that's not necessarily true. That's not what all things work together for good means. In fact, oftentimes when we think about all things working together for good, we need to really get serious about what we mean by the word good. What's good? What's bad? What's hard? What's right? And so as we see this today in this section, I really wish that we had time to have broken it up into two weeks. We're going to look in these five verses, and we're going to see your destiny. Now we've been studying Romans 8, which opens with this grand promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the Spirit, but who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That means that all of Romans 8 is supporting this idea. I want to give you a little bit of memory jaw. Look at Romans begins with this grand problem that we are all sinners. That either you have sinned against something you knew was wrong because someone told you it was wrong, or you sinned against your own conscience. That no matter who you are, no matter what family you come from, no matter what background you come from, you stand as a rebel before God. Now that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Well, because rebels don't get off very easy, do they? If you, if God's the king, and you said, no, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. You know what happens? You don't break God's law. And just like uh, the illustration people often use is you don't break the law of gravity. If you jump out of an airplane, you do not break the law of gravity. The law of gravity breaks you. If you decide, God, I don't care what you think, which is the way a lot of people live their lives, then you know what happens? You don't break it. It breaks you. You can find out. You learn that there are certain principles about the way that the world works, and those principles lead you to what Romans says, the wages of sin is death. When you sin, it leads to death. It leads to death immediately, death in your relationships, death in your peace, and ultimately it leads to eternal death as you're separated from God. That's the problem that Romans lays out. Then Romans says, but from the very beginning, God has always had a solution to that. God's plan has never been to leave you in death, but that because you can't work your way out of it and you can't earn your way out of it, God says there's one thing you must do to be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's about faith. Now, faith and repentance are two different ways of describing the same thing. To, to be saved, it means that you turn from your sin and turn to God. You say, yes, God, I'm a rebel. Yes, God, I've been working against you. Yes, God, I've been your enemy. But now I turn and I trust in you. And so in the next little section of Romans, it moves us from being sinners to being forgiven. But then it begins to talk about our struggle with sin. It said, you know, I've been forgiven. I understand that I trusted in Jesus alone as the only one who could take my guilt and my shame away. God's changed me from the inside out and made me a new creature. So why do I keep doing things that I don't want to do? 
And why are there things that I want to do that I keep not doing? And so Romans then transitions us, Paul transitions us, into this idea of a battle going on inside of us. God has implanted a new way of living in your heart. He's implanted a new creation in your heart. But that new creation is still living in the middle of the old creation. And so constantly, there's a war going on with you. We say, two natures beat within my breast, the one of God, the one of flesh. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. You are constantly being pulled between your nature of sin and your nature of God. And you decide which one you're going to be in. And the more times you make the decision to give in to sin, the more power sin has over you in your life. And the more times you make the decision to follow God, the more power God has in your life. You build up those muscles. You build up those habits. You build up those ruts in your heart. And that's where you go. So, by the end of Romans 7, Paul has us in this really strange position. He says, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now, this body of death was a Roman punishment, or a, 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 not a Roman punishment, a, a Parsian punishment, where if you murdered someone, then they would take the corpse of the person that you murdered, and they would tie their hands to your hands, and their feet to your feet, and their torso to your torso. So, instead of executing you by the gallows or beheading you, they would allow the decay of the person that you murdered to kill you. Paul says, that's how I walk around all the time. He says, my sin has made my life a stinking, rotting corpse. And he says, I feel like I'm constantly stuck to it. He says, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God who gives us, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus does not just set you free from the penalty of your sin. He sets you free from the power of your sin, from the attachment of your sin. So then in Romans 8, he begins with this big verse. There is now no condemnation. You do not stand condemned if you are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that you don't, you know, other people don't condemn you. That doesn't mean you don't condemn yourself. That means no one has any right to condemn you because God has declared you're not guilty. The Supreme Court has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, so Romans 8 then has been pulling us in this same kind of tension. That, that we are trying to walk in the law of the Spirit, try to walk in the principles of the Spirit, but the flesh continues to pull us down. We try to live with Christ in us, bringing us new life, but at the same time, the world around us is decaying. That, that we understand that the world is not how it should be, what we talked about last week, but the world is also not all that it will be. That even now, all of creation groans with the birth pangs of God changing this world. All of creation groans, waiting for things to change. You know that things are not how they ought to be in your life, in the world, everywhere else. And in your heart, there's an aching for things to be fixed, an aching for things to be made right. And that's what Romans chapter 8 has been all about. And we saw at the end of verses 24 and 25, that we're 23, 24, and 25, that we are waiting ourselves, groaning for God to come and fix even our bodies, that we can be free from sin completely. And we look forward to that in hope. All of that brings us, and now you say, what, that was a lot. We haven't even started. All of that brings us to the way to properly understand verses 26 
through 30. Let me read them to you, and then we'll look at them piece by piece. He says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes an intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh an intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the call according to his purpose. And for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did foreknow, he also, that's right. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for the same Lord. We thank you for the certainty, Lord, of our destiny, for the certainty that we move from sin to glory, Lord, of the assurance that even now in our hearts your spirit groans within us in ways too deep for words, that all things would work together for that one ultimate good. I ask you, Father, now to give us clarity of mind, Lord, courage of heart, to understand what you would have us to do in accordance with your word and how to do it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Me. This is going to be one of those days. <laughs> we are shorthanded, and I can't be in two places at once. So we begin in verse 26 with this idea, likewise the Spirit also helps our infirmities. Now what's infirmity? You know, it's infir an infirmary is a place that sick people go. Infirmity is weakness. Infirmity is sickness. You are sick. You're very sick. The Bible says the heart's desperately wicked. <laughs> very sick. Do you understand that you are not what you ought to be. If you think that you're what you ought to be, then you've got very low standards for yourself. And I, you say, well, you're trying to give me low self-esteem. Well, that's, that's all right, because we're about to move into the kind of purpose that you have. But if you believe right now that you are everything that you ought to be, you think you've got things under control, you've got your life, you're everything that you should be, then you just have poor self-vision. Some people have got really poor self-vision. Some people think that they're God's gift to everybody. But you are actually sick. You know how sick you are? Well, what does sickness normally imply? You are weak. You are fragile. You are helpless. How sick are you? Look here in verse 26. The Spirit helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. You don't know how spiritually sick you are? <clears throat> you are so spiritually sick, and I am so spiritually sick, that we don't even know what to pray for. Have you ever prayed for something, and then later found out that it sure is a good thing that God didn't answer that prayer? You pray, and you say, Lord, you know, I just, if I could just have this, then I'd be happy. And God says, you are sick. <laughs> you're so sick, and you're so weak that you want the things that are going to make things worse. And you, you're hungry, and you come to God and ask for a stone instead of bread, a serpent instead of fish. You come to God, and you ask for the things that are going to make things worse instead of the things that are going to make things better. I heard people talk about how uh, God put you know, somebody in their life for different things. And I said, well, I know 
a little bit about your relationship with that person. God didn't have anything to do with that. We need to see that we don't even know what to pray for. Now I'm going to tie this back in. If we stand between two worlds, the old world, the new world, the world that God's bringing out and the world that we stood in before, then we need to realize, and this is very important, we need to realize that sometimes our prayers are too fixated on the old world. You ever had a car where, well, we, we just spoke Colleen's phone, and the air conditioner was not getting cold enough. And so we call around to try to get some prices on what it was going to cost to get somebody to fix the air conditioner on that bus. Now, to a, to a shop, it, everybody wanted to charge more to fix the air conditioner than the car was worth. Now, I may not be the, the smartest person in the room, but I started to scratch my head and I said, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, uh, you know, we were able to fix it ourselves and avoid some of that. But we as Christians often understand that the world is total. Right? That's a, the life that you have right now, you can't keep. So why do we spend so much time and so much energy investing in something and putting more into something when the whole thing is worth? <laughs> the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We've got our priorities severely out of order. And we start to prioritize things that don't matter and ignore the things that do. We've got sick hearts. And if your prayers are sick, Jesus says, if the light of your body is darkness, how great is that darkness? If your prayers are sick, how do you think the rest of your life is? How do you think the priorities are in the rest of your life? So as we think about this, of course, Jesus here, Paul, but operating through the Holy Spirit, is being much more positive. He says, likewise, in the same way as we're saved by hope, in the same way as even now we don't see what we need, but we know that God will bring it, in the same way as that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps our infirmities. The Holy Spirit comes alongside our weakness and helps me, bears that burden with us. Because we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. When you go to pray, and you pray for the wrong things, the Holy Spirit is there underneath it, praying for you, groaning for you. Making intercession means to act as a go-between. When you were a kid, maybe you knew that one of your parents would be more open to something than the other. And so you said, Mom, will you go talk to Dad about me going to wherever? The Spirit acts as a go-between because we cannot approach God on our own. I think that I think of, uh, intercession. One of the kids here um, is really fond of coming and asking for things, but always asking for things in somebody else's name. So, um, William wanted to know if me and him could go outside and play. I don't know how much William had to do with it. Yeah, you're using somebody else as a go-between. When we pray, sometimes we kneel down and we pray, and we say, you know, Lord, please make me healthy and wealthy and popular and give me all the things that I want. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
When you say, in Jesus' name I pray, you're saying, Jesus wanted to know if I could be healthy and wealthy and powerful. Sometimes you sin, and you are worried about some consequence of your sin. And you go and you pray, Lord, please don't you let me get caught. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. But I just want you to flip it from now on when you start to pray something like that. I want you to say, God... Jesus and I wanted to know if maybe I could get off with this thing. And I want you to see how comfortable you are praying that thing. See, Jesus and I wanted to know if you could work it out where I could get off with this thing. It doesn't seem so feasible to say that anymore, does it? The Spirit is our go-between, but the Spirit always operates on a deeper level than we do. So the Spirit groans with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever tried to pray like that? Have you ever tried to pray and you just didn't know what to say? And you just had to pour out your heart to God. You said, I don't have words, God, but I'm just going to hear. I'm just going to kneel here and trust you. And the Holy Spirit supplies the content of the prayers that you can't pray. Now, what's interesting about this, the Holy Spirit works together with us. The Spirit also helps our infirmities, bears our burdens is that means that if you don't pray, then you don't get this benefit. See, it's the Holy Spirit bears the burden with you. When you pray and don't know what to say, the Spirit groans beneath that. But if you're not praying, then you don't get this particular benefit of intercession. You've got to pray, and God comes and says, I pray alongside you. I bear the burden alongside you. So if you, if your life is out of whack, if your priorities are out of order, if everything seems to be out of alignment, the steering wheel in your life is shaking so bad you think that your wrists are going to fall off, then maybe you need to spend some time in prayer. You say, well, you know, I pray before I eat. Well, skippity-doo-dah. That's wonderful. I've seen these little videos where they train dogs to pray before they, you know, lay their head down. That's just lovely. I'm, I'm so proud of you. That's why Jesus died on the cross. You can say, Lord, thank you for the screw amen. That's wonderful. That's a powerful, spirit-filled life, you know. I bet all your friends want to become Christians, too. Sorry, I'm not getting too good name on What if you pray, you say, well, what if you pray to the extent where you could ache? You said, I've got this groaning for the new creation. I've got this groaning for your glory. I don't know specifically what that looks like. I don't have the words, but I trust your spirit to do it in me. What if you would really pray and say, Lord, there are people around me right now that are dying without you, going to hell forever, Lord, and I don't know what to do, but I'm begging you to do something. Lord, sin has such control in my life. I make decisions on purpose to do things I shouldn't do, and then I wonder why I feel guilty later. You pray, you pray, you pray, you pour out your heart to God. That's the kind of prayer that it's talking about here. And that's the kind of prayer where the Holy Spirit comes in alongside you and helps get your heart in alignment. But if you just pray superficially, you never give the Holy Spirit a chance to come and knock your heart back to where it needs to be. Our prayers are an embarrassment most of the time. I bet that if I could go and I could take a little tape recorder and I could record your prayers this year and then find you again three years from now, I bet that most of you wouldn't need to pray. I could just play the, play the recording of what you prayed last time. 
You may say it faster or slower. But when we pray so often, our minds and our hearts are completely checked out. Here's something that uh, is going to be a little bit mentally. How many times have you been about have you been supposed to pray for the food or something? And you forgot to pray what you were supposed to pray for. You just fell into your little routine prayer and forgot to pray about what you were asked to pray about. You know what that means? Your brain is not engaged. See, Jesus says when you pray, don't pray with vain repetitions like the heathens do. You don't just you don't impress God by saying you know the same prayer ten times. You know that. You know that God is not like your mom that you go to and you say, please, 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 and you think that if you say please enough times, suddenly everything's going to change. God doesn't work like that. So when you pray, you pray weakly. But even so, when you pray, the Spirit comes alongside you, and the Spirit prays with intercession. The Spirit acts as your go-between in a way deeper than words can express deeper than you can put into human language. Next verse here, verse 27. And he, ser- he that searcheth the hearts, that's God. God's the one that knows what's in your heart. The one who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It's the one who searches the hearts, God, who knows what is in your heart, knows what the Spirit's praying for. And the Spirit comes and runs as a go-between, praying for the will of God in your life, praying for God to do what he wants in your life. Now, we, uh, you've seen, some of you are not uh, old enough to have seen the four spiritual laws tracks. I didn't make them anymore. But uh, maybe if you're familiar with it, you've heard of them. One of the four spiritual laws is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true. I want to tell you that that's true, that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But I also want you to know that God's idea of a wonderful plan for your life is not necessarily your idea of a wonderful plan for your life. God's wonderful plan for the life of Jeremiah the prophet was for him to preach for years and years and years with no success and then to be sawn in half by people who didn't like what he had to say. God's wonderful plan for the life of Jesus was for him to be betrayed by his best friends, taken, crucified, and then stabbed in the heart to make sure he was dead. God's wonderful plan for your life may not be for you to be the richest person on your block. God's wonderful plan for your life may not be for you to wake up every morning and sing, skipping you to what a wonderful day. God's wonderful plan for your life may include, from your perspective, a whole lot of groaning and a whole lot of suffering and a whole lot of aching to be towards. But here, on the flip side, I also want to say, a lot of the suffering that we experience is not necessarily God's perfect will for our life. Some of it we signed up for, didn't we? Some of us would have our lives easier, except we are still making payments on our stupid tax. You do something you shouldn't do. I just can't imagine why things are going so wrong now. I often uh, talk to people who can't figure out how their life got in the state of it. They say, you know, I just feel like all of these things are going wrong. Well, actually, uh, I'll give a, a slightly more specific example. example. Kenny and I went to talk to the uh, parent of one of our kids. Uh, one of our youth group kids, who was uh, 
the parent was talking about how it felt like the police were always picking on this, this child. And, you know, he'd been really doing really well, and she couldn't figure out why that was going on. Well, he'd been doing really well for about six months, but before that, you know, he was in and out of duty and everything else. And he looks and he says, I just don't know why things are not going better for me. Well, sometimes you face consequence of your decisions. You can't make all of your suffering holy. If you go and you go down to the casino and spend money that you can't have and you come home and don't have any lights, you don't get to say, God, I don't know why it is that you are keeping me from having electricity. Now, you signed up for that, right? You, you made the decision that was outside the will of God. You're paying the consequences for it. Somebody, you know, uh, gets drunk and has a car accident. They don't get to say, oh, you know, it just must be God's will to purify me through this car accident. You're outside the will of God, and you face the consequences of that. But all suffering is not because you did something wrong. Some suffering is good. Here's where we have to get into that plain good, that word good. So let's look just a little bit further. I'm going to hold it to your mind. So the one, the spirit prays for the will of God, not for your will. You don't pray for the right things, and so God doesn't do those things in your life necessarily. He prays for the will of God, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. That first part's really strong, isn't it? We know. We as Christians throughout this whole passage, all Christians know that all things work together for good. It's self-evident that God is bringing all things together for his purpose. That does not mean that all things are good. If um, some of you had breakfast this morning and eggs or something, you put salt on it. Well, salt is sodium chloride. Now, you would not want to put sodium on your eggs, and you would not want to put chlorine on your eggs. But when you put them together, suddenly they become something different. Separately, sodium is very dangerous. And chlorine, of course, chlorine gas. But when they come together, they make something different. If you could stand inside the engine of your car, and you watch the belt flying next to you, and you watch the pistons going up and down, if you were if you've never seen a car before, and I dropped a miniature you inside of an engine, you'd say, this place is chaos. <laughs> but all those things are coming and working together for a specific purpose. So not everything is good, but all things work together for good. And what is that good? Well, first off, who is that, who's that true for? That's not a promise to everybody. Maybe that bothers you something. All things work together for good to them that love God. <clears throat> and here is something hard. Do you love God? Now, most people would answer yes. But if you're husband or wife, parents or whoever, demonstrated their love for you by prioritizing you at the same level that you prioritize God, would you believe that they loved you?
Do you have any evidence where the people around you would say, wow, that person really loves God? How do I know if you love somebody? People do a lot of things without loving somebody. If you love somebody, then I look for things like self-sacrifice. I think about you putting their needs above your needs. Think about you loving somebody. I think about even the, the biblical definition, love is patient, love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't envy. Love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. If I love somebody, I want to keep them from sin. I want to keep them closer to God. If I love somebody, I want to be patient with them. If I love somebody, I want to be kind toward them. You say that you love God. Are you patient? You say, God, we want to do things on your timetable. If you say that you love God, then you are not the person who shakes their fist and says, yes, God, I know that you said this is wrong. Can I meddle because it's Memorial Day? The Bible says, don't be drunk with wine. Okay? Don't be filled with the Spirit. You say, I know I'm not supposed to get drunk, but it's fun, God. I don't care what you think. They can all things work together for those who love God. God, I love you so much. There's a little bit of disconnect there, isn't there? My question is, if I could really see in your heart right now, say that person loves God, that person does not. That person loves God, that person does not. That person loves God, that person does not. Would you want to be in this room when I start reading off those lists? Or would you say, well, you know, I, I kind of like God. You know, we're friends. A friend is somebody that when they want to do something and you also want to do that, then you go with them, Right? Say, God, if you're doing something and that happens to also be what I want to do, wherever you lead, I'll go. I saw the thing the, uh, somebody put out that uh, saying that I'm a Christian. You don't have to be uh, a Christian. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian is about the same as saying I follow Jesus except where he goes. Your friend, somebody that you like, you can say I'm going to do what they want to do as long as it's also what I want to do. But if you love somebody, suddenly their priorities have got to be your priorities. And if you want to be able to claim the promise that all things work together for good, then your heart's got to be fixed. And your ability to see what's good is going to be dependent on that. See, if I live in a constant state of rebellion against God and what he says, then how can I expect to have any peace at all? Because God's with you wherever you go, bidden or unbidden, he's here. And so if I'm constantly in this state of conflict, if I'm constantly trying to be my own God, constantly trying to make my own rules, do things my way, then I'm going to have to work all things together for good myself. And I'm not able to put all those pieces together. But for those who love God, all things work together for good. What is that? I want to. We'll have to come back. It's interesting that the Bible's assumption here is that all those who are called according to His purpose—that is, all those that are saved—love God. It is one of the most grievous things to me in the world that there are so many people who believe that they're Christians that are not. And the reason that when we receive new members, I always uh, sit down and talk with them before we transfer a letter. Because there are a lot of people who've been baptized by churches and different things, 
that when you start asking them about their actual salvation, their actual relationship with God, they repeated a prayer and raised their hand and never had a change in their life. If you think that you're going to go to heaven because you raised a, your hand and never had a change in your life, I'm telling you, God was not involved in that. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. If you, the Bible says that the love chastens every, every son he receives. If God doesn't discipline you, then you're not his child. That's what Hebrews calls him. So, if you love God, if you're his child, and you love God in response to the love that he's had for you, I can't, I can't skip this without saying that. I, you don't love God because he woke up and said, here's this stranger and I'm going to love him. You love him because he loved you so much that he died for you and gave up everything that he had for you. And he says, what will you, what's your response to that? You don't earn that. But when somebody really loves you, you know this in every area of your life. When somebody really loves you, it is almost impossible to not love them back. But again, I guess I have to be clear that I'm using love in the really biblical sense, right? When somebody puts you first, when somebody prioritizes what's good for you over what's good for themselves, when somebody tries to help you be the best you that you can be, what's the natural response in your heart? There's a draw of that person, isn't there? And who's the most perfect example of that? It's God himself, Jesus himself. If you understand what Jesus did for you, you cannot help but love him. You cannot help but say, you know, I don't want to be put into situations where I'm going to be drawn into rebellion. I want to walk according to his will, no matter what that is. So all things work together for good to them who love God, to the called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? What is the good that all things are working together for? And here, like I said, I really could have taken two weeks on this. That first half, and now here's week two. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The ones that God knew before the foundation of the world, he gave them a destiny. What's that foreknowledge on the basis of? It's not just on the basis of faith. God knew who would place their trust in him. He knew who would be in Christ. The Bible says, in Christ, he had predestined us in Christ in Ephesians 1. He said, I knew you would be linked with my son. And because I knew that, I gave you a destiny. An unchangeable, unshakable destiny. I predestined you to something. Now, that predestination is not to $10 million. That predestination is not to a, you know, a beach house or a new Mercedes. That predestination is not to health. What's it to? He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Your destiny, if you are a Christian, is to be made like Jesus. Now, I don't know if you remember growing pains. Your knees hurt, your elbows hurt. You grow a little bit and your body aches. And Nathan's nodding. Nathan had more growing pains than the rest of us. Seven feet tall. Growing pains. A change hurts. We're in a stage of growing teeth. Gnawing on our hands, gnawing on everything. Crying and gnawing some more. Crying and gnawing some more. Punching yourself in the mouth. Oh. Got some growing pains. 
Now she's growing something very small, a baby tube, and it hurts her a lot. Now here's my question. If you are being grown to be exactly like Jesus, how much change do you think that's going to entail for you? If a baby tooth keeps you up at night and everybody else around you, how painful do you think that it's going to be for you to be made like Jesus? When I say all things work together for good, I look at the baby and I say, yes, sweetheart, this is going to hurt, but boy, you are sure going to love having teeth. There's all kinds of things. Chicken fried steak is going to work it all. All things work together for good means that everything that happens is working to make you more like Jesus. Now, if you don't love him, the same sun softens wax and hardens clay. Right? If you don't love him, then you're going to be banging yourself up against the potter's wheel. You're going to be making things worse. But if you say, Lord, I want to be malleable in your hands, then all these experiences that seem so difficult and so terrible are God shaping your character. And God's saying, you know, something bad's going to happen to you because you've got a little too much pride here. <laughs> and this relationship's going to fall apart because you're a little bit of an idolater. You're worshiping this person instead of me. And you are going to lose this skill because you're a little too attached to that. You find your worth in that a little too much. And some money problems are going to come because you don't have enough faith. And, you know, this, these different things that God says, I'm shaping you into the image of Jesus. How do you respond to those pressures on you? Do you pray with the groanings too deep for words and say, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I want your will. I want your glory. Or do you push back and say, well, no God that I can ever believe in whatever treatment like this. Uh, C.S. Lewis made an excellent example. He talked about, can you imagine if painting were alive? And you had a painting who was... Uh, that was the painter's masterpiece. Perfect. And then you had some quick sketches. But you're in the studio, and you're the painter, you're the masterpiece. And you watch the master go and do one of the sketches and send it out. Do one of the sketches and send it out. And but constantly the painter is coming up and messing with you. You know, painting messing, painting messing. Oh, this isn't what I want. This isn't what I want. If you were the masterpiece painting, can you imagine saying? He's constantly messing with me. I wish you would just leave me alone. But C.S. Lewis's great line at the end of that is, that's asking for less love, not more. God loves you. He loves you just as you are. This is the great thing that people really struggle with. God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you just the way that you are. There's some churches that say, you know, you've really got to do all these different things before God will love you, and that's wrong. And there's some other churches that say God loves you just the way you are, so you just keep being you. And that's wrong, too. The Bible says God loves you just as you are, and He, because he loves you so much, he will not let you remain such an infirm shadow of what you can be. He's going to take you and will not be satisfied until you are conformed to the image of his son. So it is your destiny to be conformed to the image of Jesus so he could be the firstborn among many brethren so that you could be part of his family so that you could be there in the presence of Jesus. So much more to say here. I'm going to have to write something. 
Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, the ones that it was their destiny, them he also called. He called them out to become like Jesus. And whom he called, them he also justified. Justified is when God makes it just as if you've never sinned. Justified is when you are made right with God. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you have been justified, if God's forgiven you of your sins, it is your destiny to be glorified. You will be made just like Jesus. You will be wrapped in the glory of Jesus. You will be conformed to the image of the Son. So, a couple of scenarios that could be you here today. One, you may not be justified. You may stand before God as a rebel and say, God, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. Shake your fist at God. Lack of love. And then when bad things happen to you, I don't have anything nice to say. <laughs> I can't tell you, oh, there, there, it's all going to be all right. Because if you're going in the wrong direction, can you imagine if uh, I was walking the wrong way and uh, let's say, yeah, I want to go to the beach and I get out here and I just start walking north. And I walk for a day. And I find some other person walking on the side of the road, and I say, you know, it feels like everything I do, I just keep getting farther and farther from the beach. And the person says to me, well, you know, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. You just keep going. The person's a liar. I'm not going to get where I want to go unless I change what I'm doing. Some of you today, are saying, you know, I just feel like I'm so far from the rebel people. So I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. <laughs> doesn't make any sense, does it? You keep doing what you're doing, you keep getting what you've been getting. But what if you said instead, the old me is not working? The old me is attached to a whole system, a whole world, a whole way of doing things that is rotting and fading away, that's a slave to corruption. So God, I need something new. I need in my heart, I need something new right now. I know that I'm a rebel against you. And I know that my only hope, I know that I'm so bad that my only hope is that you came and died for me. If you'll do that, if you'll make that decision to say, I'm going to turn from my sin, I'm going to turn to God, and God will save you right now. And if he saves you, then it is your destiny to be glorified. It is your destiny to be conformed to the image of his son. And now and forever, everything that happens in your life is working toward that purpose. Maybe you are saved, and you're going through some kind of struggle in your life. You get discouraged, you get upset, you get overwhelmed. My question is this. Are you taking it with an attitude of loving of God and prayer that says, Lord, make me what you want me to be? Now, I don't know what to pray for, but I'm going to let your spirit grow inside of me, because whatever is your will, that's what I want. You make your heart malleable like that. If you make your heart soft like that, then you'll be changed. I can't guarantee you that that means that the hard thing that you're going through is just going to stop. But I can guarantee you that it will stop when it's accomplished its purpose. I can't guarantee you that you won't encounter things that you don't understand. But I can guarantee you that you will not encounter anything that God does not understand. That you will not encounter anything without a purpose. All things work together for good. That word good is that you would be like Jesus. All things work together for your good. Now, 
I gotta use, again, my sweet baby. Take her to the doctor and give her a shot. Now, when she gets a shot, I think I told you before, I, I always say, you know, well, I'll talk to her and Colleen can hold her down. That way she'll know who the bad guy is. When she goes for a shot, there's a couple phases. You know, you're holding her, you're talking to her, and they sink the needle in. And she has the surprise, and then the betrayal, and then the tears. And she thinks, you have just, how could you do this to me? You know what it is? Because she's never heard of the music. And she's never heard of polio. She's never, doesn't understand these things. When we give her something that she needs for her bigger picture, that's love. If I said, no, I'm not going to give her her vaccine because I don't want to listen to her cry, that's because I love me, not her. If God said, I'm going to you know, just sort of let you off because I don't want to deal with this. God wouldn't love you very much at all. But God says, I've got some things that seem hard. I've got some things that seem bad. But I'm going to put those things together to make you into who you need to be. That you will be like my son. You will be As we stand, as our musicians come forward, we're going to have an invitation.